Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How are you doing? Hey. Hello. Hello. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi, my name is Simon Brooks, and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folky fairy tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country where I could to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling, people who, for their work, travel about telling myths, legends, folk, and fairy tales. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom and sometimes a story or two. I'm glad you're here. When I met Megan, I had heard of her and heard one of her stories at an Olio. We met years ago at the Connecticut Storytelling Festival. It was my first proper festival and I was nervous, but Megan welcomed me to the tribe and she and her husband Jack helped me calm my nerves. We became friends. She was one of those people who I felt I had known for years, the big sister I never had. I cannot thank her enough for the friendship she has given me. This is shown here, as this is not the first time we have done this conversation. A long, long time ago we did this, but only half of it got recorded. She agreed to do it again, and this time I went to visit her, and the plan was to interview her and a couple of other people too. I ended up only meeting and conversing on record with Ed Stivender. You've heard that conversation already. I hope. So, this is the third attempt. Megan is brilliant. This is the conversation we had. So, Megan, thanks for being part of this. I really appreciate it. For the second time, the first time I went a bit south. Um, and so I'm, so I'm really glad that you've uh, agreed yeah, to do this again. Yeah, remind your listeners what happened the first time, Simon. Yeah, um, so... <laughs> So for some strange and bizarre reason, the, episode, the conversation that I had with Megan, which was amazing, um, it decided to cut it in half. And for some reason, I could only find the first half. And it was the first 20, well, it wasn't even a half. It was like a third, maybe. It was like the first 20 minutes, and then the rest of it vanished. And I don't know where it was. So I tell between legs. <laughs> <laughs> Megan's been absolutely wonderful in having me back. So... Um, my daughter, she's now 15, but when she was younger, she absolutely adored your CDs, your Groundhog CDs. And they were played a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what I wanted to ask you is, like, why did you do Groundhogs? Uh, because when my son was born... I kind of missed out. He was born in the autumn and the whole being overwhelmed with a baby um, mm -hmm. blurred the whole holiday season for me. And um, February, late January and February in Oklahoma are miserable times of the year. And I already felt like I was isolated and detached and unconnected to my friends and any of extended family I had. And I just thought I need I need something, some way to reach out and touch them somehow. Mm -hmm. So I sent out um, Groundhog card, Groundhog Day cards, because that was the next holiday coming up. And I think all I did was carve a rubber stamp out of an eraser, 
Uh-huh. And said, happy Groundhog Day. And I stamped it onto index cards, addressed them like postcards and sent them out. And I thought, you know, they're going to think I'm crazy, but at least they're going to know I, I'm still here. Right. And um, just on the base, just that raw, elemental, little gesture, so many people got back to me personally. And this is back in the days when long distance was expensive, you know? Right. And I I got more long distance calls and got in touch with more people responding and saying, thank you so much. That was such a sweet, uh, sweet little pick me up for a dreary February. So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll do Groundhog Day instead of Christmas. And, Uh um, next year I asked a friend who was an artist to draw me a cartoon of a groundhog doing something. And so she drew this darling little cartoon of a groundhog under the sun on a, you know, on a beach chair, sunning itself. And the next year I hit up another artist friend. And after a while I had exhausted all the artist friends I knew (laughs) um, to draw cartoons for me. My son did one of my favorites. It was, um, Groundhog meets Godzilla. (laughs) And so it was a groundhog (laughs) sitting on top of Bambi. You know that that animated film, Bambi meets Godzilla? Yes. (laughs) So it was a groundhog and Bambi was squashed under it. That was one of my favorites. (laughs) My son was good for some some cartoons, but after a while, it's sort of like, I thought, I can't keep asking my friends for cartoons for Groundhog Day. Right. And I'm a writer, so why don't I write something? So I started writing those generic holiday letters and uh, would send those out like, well, we're all celebrating because mom's getting out of prison next week. And, (laughs) you know, they didn't foreclose on the house after all and just (laughs) stupid stuff, you know. Uh But then... um, I've always liked parody. I've always liked fractured fairy tales. Mm-hmm. I loved Rocky and Bullwinkle's, you know, that segment yes. on the Rocky and Bullwinkle right. show. And so I thought, well, why don't I try to fracture a fairy tale? And that was the three little groundhogs and the wolf. Um, it was, you know, people loved it. And so the next year I did, I think the three groundhogs gruff. And more people loved it and passed it on to their friends. And their friends said, would you ask her if I can get on that mailing list? And so when all was said and done, by the time I was quit my job or was ready to quit my job, and by the time I was ready to record as a storyteller, I had six Groundhog stories and a mailing list of about 150 people. Wow. It It was kind of an expense. (laughs) <laughs> making these little booklets to send out every year and thinking up uh, uh, some kind of a pun return address like um, Helena Handbasket or um, <laughs> from Nita Hug or from Sharon Sharalike. Uh, you know, having to come up with the puns and then print the books and get them all. 
it, it kept me out of the doldrums. It kept me out of the winter doldrums in the middle of winter. That's excellent. But uh, by 2002, I had six stories. So I thought, okay, I'm going to, these are the ones I'm going to record. So you went right that's, at that's it. That's excellent. And at, to date, I haven't done any for several years because I ran out of fairy tales that are common knowledge. Like right. here on the spot right now, you list off, list off as many fairy tales as you can that you think kids, your kids age and people our age and people in between know and are familiar with. Oh, if they're my kids age, if it wasn't my, for my, if it wasn't, if I excluded my kids, but their age, I would say probably not very many stories at all. Um, uh -huh. You know, so I mean, you know, Little Red Riding Hood, Three Bears, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, the Three Billy Goats Gruff, um, Cinderella, the Little Mermaids, anything done by Disney, <laughs> right? I mean, that's pretty much it. Yeah. And they yeah. don't even and know like the real say, version kids, of the Little Mermaid. Kids your age now don't even know some of those. And in order mm -hmm. for parody to be funny, your audience has to be familiar with what you're what you're sending up. Right. You know? They need to be what in the job. Send up of. Right. And I have found, you know, they for years and years and years, that was my very favorite work that I had ever done. Wow. I thought I I achieved funny. And you I don't did. do that very often. <laughs> but the last couple of times I've tried to tell one of my groundhog stories. Mm -hmm. I can tell it's kind of, it's, it's, it's not, it's not zinging like it used to. Yeah. I don't think they've weathered well. Well, I think, I mean, our generation, right? Our generation. Oh, another thing. I have Australian friends who um, absolutely were gobsmacked by the historical fiction I did around the civil war. Yeah, what that was, was civil excellent. about that where it's a very serious, somber piece. Yeah. And I said, oh, good, I'm glad you liked it. What did you think about the other CD I sent you? Mm -hmm. And one of, one of my friends just said flat out, he said, you know, that one left me cold. Wow. So I thought, oh, so maybe this is just American humor. And now I'm thinking, Mary, maybe it's just out of date American humor. Maybe, yeah. But I mean, the kids, the, say the kids, the, the people who are coming out of library schools these days, you know, the, the young people who are getting their, you know, masters in library sciences, they, they don't know the stories themselves. I know. Isn't that sad? Yeah. I mean, the librarians that were, that were looking after you and me and, you know, my brother, who's a couple of years younger and maybe half a generation after that, the librarians were taught storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. and they, that's what they did. And now they don't. Now they spend more time helping kids on computers. And well, so they I don't... wasn't taught storytelling in library school. It was through working in a library that I got into it, but it wasn't in library school. I didn't have any storytelling classes at Oklahoma University. Hmm. Okay. We were information scientists. Right. Okay. So when, <laughs> when was that, if you don't mind me asking? No, it was, uh, I graduated in 1990 when I was 40 years okay. old. Okay, all right. 
we so yeah, that did. was that was that was probably the beginning of the end, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it was. I think it was because um, computers. That's the only reason I'm computer literate is because I kind of had to be in order to get out of <laughs> library school. But um, we were just, you know, just being impressed by ooh a bulletin board. You can you can write something on your keyboard here, and people all over the United States, if they're tuned in, can see what you've written in real time. Right. You know, or um, uh, you could be on a long distance chat, and and you paid long distance telephone rates. Right. Right. You know, I mean, long for, long distance rates haven't been gone for that long. No, I mean, they, they really haven't. haven't. And yet this generation that I've raised, you know, maybe you did as well, but, you know, my kids have no idea what a long distance phone call what was, you know, what does that mean? It means, you know, for me, it meant, you know, if I was, if I was calling, you know, I had friends and family that lived in the States while I was in the UK and it was something like a one pound 50 a minute, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I had to like, make sure I had the money <laughs> to pay for the phone call because it was going to get really expensive really quickly. Really fast. <laughs> Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think my kids maybe used to know how to place a collect call, uh -huh. but you know, it's yeah, it's weird. It is. Everyone has a phone in a pocket. Uh huh. Yeah. And so we're you... paying for long distance, but it's you know we're paying it to Verizon oh. and. We're paying yes. We're paying a lot more than. Than... Yes. yes. It still costs money. It's just not a separate bill. I know. It's true. It's true. But I think that there's somebody making an awful lot of money off the rest of us. That's for sure when it comes to that kind uh, of technology. So you grew up in Oklahoma, is that right? No. That's where, where I'm you... from, but I didn't grow up there. Okay. So where did you grow up? Um, the west of the Mississippi. I started in Texas. And then from Texas, we moved to Wyoming and from Wyoming to Oklahoma and from Oklahoma to California. And then when I was 19, my dad got transferred to Australia. I lived there for a year and then I was on my own, but I wasn't grown up yet. <laughs> but you you so became I, a folk um, star. Huh? Yeah, you yeah, became right, right. Celebrity. No, actually, that was very obscure. <laughs> So um, my dad was uh, in the petroleum industry and his company moved him around every few years. So my folks are from Oklahoma. My family, extended family mostly still lives there. Mm -hmm. But I, I lived there for three years when I was a little kid. And then um, after I was in my 20s, I lived there for 16 years went to library school so I could move away from Oklahoma. And that was 30 years ago. Wow. So did you, when, when you were, when you were brought up, were you like told stories as a kid? Were you read to or? Yeah. Yeah. My mom read to us uh -huh. and she also, she didn't tell folk tales, but she told stories about when she was a little kid. And she grew oh. up on a farm in Lincoln County, Oklahoma. That's about, I don't know, an hour northeast of Oklahoma City. It's, um, 
it's farm, it's rural. And it wasn't in the Dust Bowl because that was further west, but it okay. was on the rim of the Dust Bowl. Okay. And my mom grew up on a farm in Lincoln County, Oklahoma, in the late 20s and 30s, 1930s. And because of the way she remembered her childhood and the stories she told, I grew up thinking, what could be more perfect than growing up on a farm in Oklahoma in the late 20s and early 30s? Until I got to high school and history lesson and learned, yeah. wait a minute, that was called the Great Depression. Yeah. Right. This is a book called The Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> Read it. It's about your people. You know? But my mom, my mom had such um well, she she had a remarkable father who raised his three daughters by himself. Oh my gosh. He ran a farm and through the he depression. Spring on his farm. He knew better than to grace well, he grazed a few cows. Mm -hmm. He knew better than to turn it into a cash crop because he knew how fragile the soil in Oklahoma is. He was a really good, um, he was just a really good steward of his land and he had a lucky farm with a spring on it. Oh, wow, so that makes a huge difference. even though they were cash poor, they never went hungry. And they, you know, my grandfather, helped neighbors out sometimes mom said that when she got to high school now i've i've seen these houses where she lived when she was a little kid and they are modest farmhouses but she said when she got to high school one of the girls in her senior class told her you know carolyn when we were little kids every time we'd drive by your house our parents would nudge each other and say that's where the rich folks live because by those standards, my mom grew up as a rich kid. Wow. She had plenty of food. She had a piano. They had books. They had a radio. Um, she had, she had more than two changes of clothes. She had play clothes, school clothes and good clothes. Wow. That's amazing. Isn't it yeah. incredible? So my aunt, I have two aunts, well, I had two aunts, they passed away. Um, they also, uh, my grandfather was a farmer. He came over to the States and moved up to Canada and, and had his own farm up in Canada. And it was the same for them. They were food fine, but uh -huh. they never had money. But they, they said that they never felt like they were poor. You know, you make do. You make over, you make over, make do or do without. Right. Yeah. And my father's mother, you know, she had, she had old pillowcases full of worn out clothes that she would cut into strips and hook rugs. So I still have a couple of her hooked rugs. She would, I think she, she braided rugs. She pieced quilts. She sewed all of her own clothes and my aunt's clothes in high school. She was an excellent seamstress. She, she kept everything. Our house was a mess. It was just full of clutter. <laughs> but you never knew when you were going to need that piece of string. 
You know, right. <laughs> you never knew when that particular screw was going to be the very one you needed to fix your toaster. Sounds and like me. <laughs> she never threw anything away. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So did your father read you stories or tell you stories or was he? Uh, my father pretty much left child rearing to the women. Okay. My dad brought home the paycheck and that was okay. his contribution pretty much. Uh, now and then if he was stuck at home alone with me or if we had to go someplace in the car for a long time and we were kind of there together, we didn't have much to talk about. So I would try to get him to tell me stories like mom told me about when okay. he was young. You know, and so he did tell me a, a few good ones. He had a friend named James Black, and they did everything together. You know, they were both poor kids in Edmond, Oklahoma, and uh, they would stay out all night when they were in seventh grade, and their mothers didn't worry about them. Uh, when they were in high school, let's see, Dad, um, Dad got mad at the school principal, and uh, so he and James Black went over to the school principal's house and took the gas cap off his uh, car, peed in the gas tank, put the, you know, <laughs> and my dad would tell me about that, but he didn't, oh, he didn't get into anything, if, if it smacked of nostalgia, my dad wasn't going there, you know? Oh, wow, okay. So now I did listen to my dad was a great storyteller and I did listen to his stories, but they weren't told to me whenever his old war buddies would get together now and then they'd come through town or if we were on a road trip, we'd stop in and say hi to one of his old war buddies. And when the war buddies got together, I would sit on the floor at the end of the sofa so they wouldn't tell me to go away. And I would listen to them. And that's where I learned that World War II was the happiest time of my father's life. He was, a, he was trained as a fighter pilot. Right. And he was sent to the Philippines. But he ha early on, he got an internal ear injury. And he couldn't fly anymore. So early on, he left the Philippines and went and taught flight school in, um, in Atlanta. Oh, OK. okay. So, you know, he had some training, his own training stories, mm -hmm. and then his teaching stories. And we didn't hear. I didn't know until I was, until my kids were born, that my dad flew strafing missions on the beaches in the Philippines. He was up close and personal to the people that he killed. He oh. never mentioned that, ever. Yeah, well, um, I don't. I don't think anybody does that's been in those situations. Probably no, no. But when he was dying, when I knew he was, you know, when he called to tell me that he had been diagnosed with lung cancer and um, tried to make a joke of it, he said, "Yep, I'm just hanging out in heaven's waiting room." <laughs> About a month into it, I said, "Dad." we're not going to have that many more conversations. What do you know that I don't know that I need to know? And he said, Oh hell, Megan, don't get started with that crap. I don't have any wisdom. 
All I know is that you're born, you live, you die, and when you're dead, you're dead all over, just like Rover. There is no heaven. There is no hell. That's all oh, wow. I can tell you. And I'll tell you one more thing, too, Curly. World War II was the best thing that ever happened to me. And, you know, I had heard him say that before, but I didn't know why he said that. So this time I said, why? What was so good about World War II? So World War II busted me out of my bubble. It took me to places where people lived in ways I had no idea people could live like that and thrive and get along. And I realized that there are any number of ways that people can live and be successful and do things. And that end of conversation. Wow. That's... World War II showed my father that there were horizons beyond Edmond, Oklahoma. And how old he said, was if he... it hadn't been for that, I would have been a barber on Broadway in Oklahoma. And, you know, that's how I'd have spent my life. And as it is, he traveled the world, you know? That's incredible. So how old was he when he signed up? Or was He was uh, fresh out of high school. He had just turned 18. Wow. Oh, my gosh. It's amazing what we do to kids, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. So you ended up in Australia. Well, I didn't end up there, but I landed there for a year. Right. But you became, you, you became a minor celebrity, didn't you? In, no, in a minor area. No, no. <laughs> I made a record. The record was lost in obscurity. And but it's now only it's because back. it was so obscure <laughs> that it is now a collector's item. That's the only reason. And if there is any artistic merit to that record, I will take credit for <laughs> writing some lyrics and cranking out 10 songs really quickly. I will say, yes, I had a sweet little soprano voice, which I don't have anymore at all. But the musicianship, the gift, of that album is that my friend Doug Rowe produced it and played on it. And my friend Orlando Agostino played on three of those cuts and made his guitar sound, sound like heaven. What's the and, name of the album? Well, I was, I was in my deeply evangelical Christian phase at the time. Uh -huh. And I was expecting the rapture to happen any moment. So I named it Maranatha, which uh, I believe in the book of Revelation is translated loosely as come quickly, Lord. Oh, okay. Let's get this second coming underway. And I, I you know, I thought it was imminent. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that because my son today, who's 20, um, he said that, I mean, he's not religious. I should I should state that off the bat. Um, he he said that there's this massive downfall of people attending church and and believing in God. There are more atheists now than ever. And he said, and the world's going to hell in a handbasket at an equal rate. Maybe we should start getting back to God. <laughs> you know. Which took me by surprise. Wisdom, there's some wisdom tucked away in there. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think it is, that we yeah. need more religion. Yes, I would agree I think, with that. 
we need we need to get in touch with our spirits with ourselves with the earth we need to listen and see and and get get still just get still and look around and see how amazing and how privileged we are to live in this world yeah i would agree with that i would wholeheartedly agree with that i think we're ritual starved yes we have no rites of passage for our children yes so all of those things anchor us anchor us to our culture i think it's when we start getting evangelical and saying and you need to believe the way i believe mm -hmm. yeah that's yeah that never no. works <laughs> no it's it, it, it's just that's how war well, starts <laughs> based on fear yeah 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 and that's how many people are killed in the name of of god oh my right. heavens yeah right exactly exactly i don't think there are any leaders either people that um you know there's there's been a number of different types of leaders um, in the past who have led us in one way or another, whether it's spiritual or otherwise, you know, and there's no, you know, the, you look at these people who are like geniuses, right? I mean, who are the geniuses now? They, they, they do, there doesn't appear, appear to be anyone. There's no one that in, inspires anybody. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there's no Einstein or no... Uh... Yeah, John Lennon, if you want, you know, it's, you know, Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah, the Dalai Lama has a pretty low profile. So in 2011, you were featured as a new voice at the NSN. Yes. Did you want to get there sooner? Oh, hell yeah. yeah. And were you, were you yeah, happy I when you got there? First, or was... I sent my first application, I think, in 2005. Um, just to get on the radar, you right. know, getting on the radar is hard or yeah. it was, maybe it's not so no. hard now if you're just starting, but Absolutely. now the radar is just so full of people getting on it though, that uh, right. I, I, I'm overwhelmed by choices and options and venues. And is it going to be a moth? Is it going to be a body? Is it going to be a first person arts? Is it going to be this thing I know is true? Is it, you know, or uh, artists standing strong together? And yes. I, during this, during this pandemic period, I've just kind of pulled my blanket over my head <laughs> and I, I'm kind of fetal right now, emotionally, you know, I do. I've yeah. done a couple of zoom gigs and I'll do them as long as I'm asked, but they are not fun. And all the energy is like it goes into that little hole in my phone or in my iPad and nothing comes back to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, I, my next door neighbor was over today. We sat six feet apart, <laughs> and had a face to face visit. It's, it's just wonderful that she drops in on me like that. And she said, you know, I, I understand 
how hard it is for you to, if you ever have another sort of Zoom gig and you need an audience, let me know and I'll come over and be your audience. Oh, wow, that's really nice. And I have a dear friend who's in the hospital now um, and I want to record a story for her that she loves my version of it. I like and, that version of it. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier. Yeah, yeah. Tell people so, the name of the story. Uh, it's the 12 Dancing Princesses. And um, I want to I wanna send her a video, you know, a YouTube video of it as a Get Well card. And Jeannie said, well, let me be your audience for that. So Jeannie's coming over in the morning, and we're going to go out on the carport. And um, I'm going to tell the 12 Dancing Princesses to my friend across the table from me. <laughs> <laughs> and send it to my friend who's in the hospital. I'm, that's wonderful. I'm looking that's, forward to see how that goes. Yes, that, that's going to be a nice gift. She's going to love that. So you were also filmed in a, in a PBS project with Kentucky Education Television. Oh, my gosh. I had almost T forgotten about that. Yeah. Tell me about that because I've seen some of those films because, you know, when I was researching for this, I pulled up <laughs> some of the videos. My gosh. I do. My, um, I'm, I'm quite diligent sometimes. <laughs> you are. You are. I'm amazed. Man, there's no hiding from you, man. No, um, <laughs> Be careful Mary what you do. Hamilton set that up. Okay. She was, I, I think it's still going. It obviously isn't going this year, but I believe it's still going. The Big South Fork. Um, it's a storytelling festival at one of the... Tennessee State Parks that's right smack up against the Kentucky line. Okay. So that's how Mary, who's from Kentucky, is uh, involved in this big Southwark thing. And she was artistic director, so she was getting um, storytellers on board for the big Southwark festival. And at the same time, some PBS people... Uh, contacted her, I think, and said, um, you seem to know your way around the storytelling world, and we are trying to do some uh, educational TV with storytellers, so what storytellers could you recommend? And she said, well, I got a bunch of them right here. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be in one place at the same time, and if you can send a crew, we can get them all filmed. Wow. So that's how that happened. It was, that's, that's uh, it, it was concurrent with the festival. We did school gigs and then we did one day of tent festival. Uh -huh. And I think the day before we did the school gigs, we did the, uh, we did the recording. There was uh, Carrie Sue Ivar, uh, Donna Washington. I am so embarrassed. Oh, Dan Ketting and me i think that it was us i think that was i hope those, there were yeah. five people and no I those forgot. those are the names that i found so yeah you've got it yeah yes congratulations <laughs> good remembering megan yes um so we all uh told stories that they chose we gave them each uh, like a menu of here's here's what we could do right. that would translate okay into video uh -huh. And they said, well, this goes with curriculum guidelines and this meets the, 
you know, these things mesh with our curriculum guidelines. So these are the stories we want you to do. That's so cool. That is amazing. That was synchronicity in action right there. Yeah, it was. Well, it was Mary thinking on her feet. Have you done one of these with Mary Hamilton? No, I haven't. Not yet. Not yet. Oh, heck. Get a <laughs> hold of her. She's a hoot. I've, I've met her a couple of times. Um, I think she's, she's come to Sharing the Fire a couple of times, and that's where I've met her. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, get, I'm, her, get her on here. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll do that. Uh, now, you do also do origami. You're the um, origami swami. <laughs> yes, I am. <clears throat> Just How did because you... I say so. No one, no one gave me that name. I took it. Okay. okay. Yes. <laughs> the kids in the, in the uh, school where I used to be the story lady in the library, uh -huh. I was the origami mommy. <laughs> ah, see, alliteration is such a wonderful thing. It really is. <laughs> yeah. It makes it so much yeah, easier so to come I, out. I do a lot of origami. Yeah. And you also, because you, you told it the true story of the Children's Place Memorial at Hiroshima in Japan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you're really drawn to Japanese culture. Or if it's just a coinky dink that those are just some things that happen to be. It's on that more a coincidence. Culture. And um, I, I know very little about Japanese culture. I've got. Okay one close friend who's Japanese, Kuniko Yamamoto, uh, and just whatever Kuniko introduces me to, I love it, you know? Yeah. And I love the fact that China and Japan, but Japan especially, is not afraid of cute. They're they not. Know they how are to so cute. not. They do. <laughs> like, we do, we do cute and it's smarmy. They do cute, and it's cute. Yes, you know? I would agree. Yeah, oh, dear. and you you don't just you're not just stuck with origami because you do a lot of found object art as well, upcycled art. Yeah. Do you still do that? Yeah, yeah. I think that comes from. Um, I think that's my depression roots. You know. Oh, that's interesting. Like, don't throw it away. I can use that for something. Yeah. And, if you saw the clutter that surrounds me now, you would. <laughs> I've, you would know I've been that to I'm your house. I've seen. Old block. <laughs> so when you when you I'm gonna go I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump into storytelling right now because we haven't talked about that much really. Your storytelling, um, I love your storytelling. Um, you're really authentic. You're very genuine. You go deep. Um, you don't do. Monty Python women voices, and you've told me off for doing that. <laughs> what? And it took, yes. And it, yes, it did. I, yes, because when I catch myself doing I'm like, Megan told me not to do that. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I immediately dial it back, and it sounds kind of weird if you're watching a recording, and it's like, oh, there we go, and it's a nice lady who's talking now. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's like slamming the brakes on a train. It might take a mile to stop, but it does. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> uh, you do do folk and fairy tales as well as personal narrative. Um, what 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 will draw you? What what does a story have to have in it? Um, I'm talking like folk and fairy tales here to draw you to it. I don't know. I don't know. I just know that some of them 
grabbed me by the throat and some of them wedge deep into my brain and don't let go. It's precious few. I don't have that big a repertoire. Um, and some of the ones that have grabbed me by the throat, I, I'm thinking of one in particular that I can't tell anymore until I, I, I have to do something with it because okay. it's um, a couple of years ago, I got a gig that was in conjunction with a big Shakespeare event and the woman who hired me, and it was a good enough gig that I didn't dare say no. Mm -hmm. um, she said, and we're gonna need some fairy tales that are contemporaneous with Shakespeare's time. I thought, piece of cake, no problem. <laughs> yes, again. <laughs> you know, like, um, these are, this is when people were writing these stories down, but not necessarily, Shakespeare didn't necessarily grow up hearing them at his nurse's knee. Right. You know, but I did find two that I could kind of stretch into the, the needs of the day. Um, and one of them is King Thrushbeard, which has a lot of similarity to Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, that's a great story. Well, I thought so too, until I quit thinking so. And I think, well, that's the last story I've worked on. I haven't worked on any stories since we've been home. Um, and I was, I was working on that one. And I thought, even though, even though I did temper the discipline mm -hmm. that this young woman was subjected to, and I did not allow my King Thrushbeard to perpetrate any abuse, it was still, it was abusive, it was manipulative. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, and, and then I got to thinking, wait a minute, this young woman, she's, she's the most beautiful woman in the world. She's been told that ever since she was aware of who she is, that she's a princess and the most beautiful princess in the world. And what were our princesses treated? Well, she was isolated. She was, her little circle there inside the castle keep was all she knew. Right. And so I've, the way I tempered the story was I made it that as soon as she was on the road, leaving her father's castle, her horizon started widening. And we, the listeners, see that she was provincial. And yeah, provincial people are snobbish and they're very closed. And as she goes along, as she progresses on the road, she does repent her arrogance. And then I, I characterized the minstrel who is really King Thrushbeard in disguise, who is sent to tame her. Um, I made him compassionate. I made him more, a teacher or mm -hmm. a mentor than a disciplinarian and 
I, I mentioned that she was a quick study and she loved learning things. And in no time at all, she knew how to cook a meal. In no time at all, she knew which plants in the garden were weeds and which were good to eat. You know, so I have, I have her growing instead of getting smashed down and learning by being punished. She's learning by having her world opened up. But still, the upshot of the story is that she is publicly humiliated at the ball where all these people come for the king's wedding. She's pulled out of the line of kitchen wenches. She's singled out and set up to be humiliated. And then the king lifts her up and compassionately, kindly, in front of God and everybody says, I love you, will you be my queen? And everybody has misty eyes and hears her say yes, and we all have warm fuzzies, and they have a lovely wedding and live happily ever after. And that is where I go, no! <laughs> no! Right. Not only no, but hell no! <laughs> Because it is still, it is still the dude savior. Yeah. It is still patriarchal. So in my rewrite, and I don't know if I'll ever get it written, and I don't even know if when I, when I get it written, I'll ever do it. I worked on it. I workshopped it. Did I workshop it when you were here? You were, you were about to before I left, yeah. You were talking about okay. it. Yeah. So when you were, you did our house concert here, right? Yes, I was. It was it was preying on my mind. Right, and you told you told me what you were doing with it then. Okay, you, you ran Why through it. Why didn't you shut me up then? No, because my listeners haven't heard your thoughts, and that's what I okay. want. So. Okay, all right. Because it's really this is really important stuff. So, the next month I did workshop it, and I did stop the story right there, where he asks her to marry him. And I stopped the story and I said, I can't go any further. This is where I start choking now, whenever I try oh. to tell this story, because I don't like what it signifies. Right. It still signifies that she is his queen. Right. And that he is responsible for her redemption. And what I hope to do is this, the vision I have is that she, in front of God and everybody, publicly, again, rejects him. But this time she does it in a measured way. Right. And she says, no, I can't. I can't. You've, you've been undercover with me this whole time. And she says, you're breaking my heart right now, too, because I have realized for the last several weeks that I am in love with the minstrel who took me from my father's home. I am in love with him, and he will not be at the cottage when I return tonight. Because he will be here, sitting on the throne, ruling the kingdom. Now that's an ending that I like. That's so, a, oh, <laughs> such a good ending. <laughs> Wow. Yes. We need that. You need to tell that story, Megan. That's that that is so powerful. Because there are people that think that they can't say no. Right? And and 
you know, I've, I've been in an abusive relationship. I've had, I've known people that have been in abusive relationships and it, you, you find it almost impossible to say no. Yeah. Yeah. And to hear that story is lucidity when they say, Oh, I understand. Okay. I get it. I get it. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm different now. They're not different. Right. Yeah. (laughs) They're just dialing it back ready for the next, it's like a spring. Yeah. You know, uh-huh, yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Good image. That's a great yeah. image. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think you definitely need to tell that story. Well, as soon That's... as we're sprung loose from this quarantine, <laughs> I will, I'll trot it out and see how it flies. Okay. Well, you trot it out with me anytime you like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, that's so good. So that, so that one obviously grabbed you by the throat, dragged you down to the ground and sat on you for a while. It did indeed. It yeah. did indeed. Yeah. What about those Another stories? Another one. Huh? What about those stories that fly into the ear and you're just like, <gasps> it lifts you up and carries you and you don't have to do anything to it because it, it just, it's like a, a liquid that fills every single pore of your brain and it knows where it needs to go and you know where it's going. And it, that was Davy and the devil. Oh, really? Yep. I was, I was jet lagged, zonked on Jack's shoulder on a hot summer day in Fremantle, Western Australia Uh at the Australian national storytelling festival. And this, I think he's from New Zealand. I do not know his name, but I was jolted awake at the opening line, Davy hated fish. (laughs) I was awake and I was riveted to that story until the end and I felt like I was flying. When it came to the conclusion, I Uh was thrilled. (laughs) And then I spent two years looking for that damn story. (laughs) No way, that's... Yeah, yeah, I, uh, this was, let's see, when was this, 2005, and uh, there was the Sir La Lune storytelling message board. Yes, yeah. And I went on that, and I said, who knows this story? Somebody responded that Taffy Thomas had recorded it on a cassette, Mm -hmm. take these chains from my heart which I couldn't buy because it was only offered in UK currency. Oh, okay. So I made a trade deal or a barter deal with somebody on that list that I would send them something I had that they wanted in exchange for Taffy Thomas's Take These Chains From My Heart. And I listened to his version of the story and then I found a couple more from different parts of the British Isles and from Brittany. And uh, from France, wow, okay. I th- yeah, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure. So, um, yeah, Davy and the Devil is one that, uh, it just kind of sank right into me and blossomed and I love it. I still, yeah. I still get excited <laughs> telling it. <laughs> I love those stories when they happen. So what about your personal narrative stories? What about them? What, what, how do you choose what to tell and what not to tell? 
Um, well, when I first moved here to Philadelphia, uh, we used to go to a lot of slams and I would put my name in the hat. And so a lot of those slam topics dictated what I, I would try to find something that would wrap around the slam topic. Mm -hmm. And that got me a couple of really good stories. But another, I guess the best acid test is which memories I recount over and over again until I know people are sick of hearing <laughs> them or, you know, too nice to say, yeah, we've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. told it. You told us that, you know, I'm, I live in dread fear of becoming a repetitive old woman. I really do. Um, My kids keep me in check. They give me a look that says, oh, they've heard this one too many times. <laughs> See, I don't live with my kids anymore. <laughs> but I realize that those stories that keep coming back come back for a reason. Mm -hmm. And if I can find the reason why they come back, oh. or if I can find a story in there, then, or what led up to it, or how how it has affected me since, there's probably a story in there. And um, that's given me, that's given me some good personal stories. Um, one about at eight years old, embarrassing four grownups all, all at the same time, just by repeating what they had already said. <laughs> <laughs> Um, about the adoption of my little sister. Um, what else? Bob Maplethorpe Memorial Condon Wallet, a love story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. One of my favorite yeah, stories. <laughs> people would ask over and over again, how did you and Jack get together? How did you and Jack get together? Because shortly after we got together, he moved away, and you know we long distanced for sixteen years. Oh my gosh! Like, How did we get together? So um, that yeah, that's where Bob Maplethorpe Memorial Condom Wallet came from. Um, I don't know what I I I'm not recalling any of the other personal stories I do, but it they usually start with stories that people ask about or well the newest one honky tonk um is about it it started with that album that i cut in australia oh okay and it's about i even knew what that was about before i wrote it it is about how we're so quick to judge our artistic merit and how as artists, we're the first ones usually ready to discount what we've done. Mm -hmm. It's not very good, that, yeah. but you might like it or, yes. well, you know, and <laughs> I just threw this together. <laughs> I just, yeah. Yeah. One of my, one of my friends who's a really good writing teacher calls it apron ringing. You're reading oh. your apron and you're going, oh, well, you know, I, I, I didn't have time to really work on it. You're probably not going to like it, but here it is. Or like me, I, 
realized as an adult how naive and raw my talent as a musician and as a singer was. And it embarrassed me. I was mortified to hear how sincere that young woman had been over what sounded to me like hackneyed sentiments. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until I saw my friends actually listen to that album and not laugh that I realized, who do you think you are? Mm -hmm. You know, this, this was an honest effort yeah. by a very young, very naive young woman. And honor it for God's sake. Yeah. Because you grew out of that woman. Right. You know, she, she spawned you. Yeah. And those sentiments that she had were, were very real to her at the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And maybe, maybe they were hackneyed because she couldn't articulate them well enough because she didn't have enough life experience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, and dealing with makers, with painters, with people who sculpt, people who blow glass or make sparks with iron. I noticed that there is a tendency among all the artists I know to sort of not be willing to put themselves forward, to need, need to be recognized, right. need to be seen, need to be acknowledged. But as far as doing our part to meet that need, we're, we, we don't want to be pushy. We don't want to be right. self-serving. We don't want to be... Uh, we're very happy being hobbits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Living on a little burrows, making things, but not sharing them with the rest of the world. Yep. There you go. Because it's easier to do that. <laughs> yep. But you don't, you can't make a living that way. That's for sure. <laughs> no, you can't. Did you, you have can't. many... Um, did you have anybody that was a, a mentor to you or an inspiration that you, somebody that you saw that was just like, wow, I, I really want to do this. I re that this, this is what this person inspires me or. Joya Tempanelli's version of the shoemaker and the elves in Oklahoma city in 1987 lit the, lit the spark. Yeah. Um, That's one that, of your favorite stories, isn't it? Yeah. And that yeah. showed me, that was, that was when I realized that this was something I had never, ever encountered anywhere before. And that I wanted, I wanted it. I wanted in on it. I wanted to be it. I wanted to surround myself with it. Right. As far as style goes, I think Mary Hamilton is the one because she is so transparent. There is no, the Mary you have off stage is the Mary you see on stage and there is craft, there is work, there is uh, scholarship. She is, she is not lazy. 
but honestly, you cannot see the strokes when she gets up and tells a story. And first time I saw her, now I, I admire other people who have different stylistic chops and who are very painterly, okay. you know, as long as that doesn't get in the way of the story. But the first time I saw Mary at a storytelling festival, you know, I had seen people who were theatrical and people who were funny and had perfect timing and people who were down home. But she was, I said, there. That's what I want my storytelling to feel like. Unvarnished. Yeah. Catherine Wyndham had that gift. Yes, she did. I don't know too many other storytellers who... I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure I will think of 10 of them as I'm fixing dinner tonight and go, ah, shit. <laughs> you know, I didn't mention those names and they're just as good at it. But those are the two that are leaping to mind for me right now that. I think Joe just, Callahan is very transparent in his telling. Well, Jay's pretty theatrical too. He can I mean, be. He, you know, his he, stories from Pill Hill, they're, and I sit and I'm just in awe of his theatricality. Right. I can't do that. But there's, there are other stories that he tells, which there are moments of theatrics, but then there's this place that he goes to where it You're becomes, right. yes. where it becomes, it's, just, it's, it's like, you know, veneer comes off. Uh-huh, right, you know? right. And then he puts yeah. it back on again for certain parts of the story. He's a master of like switching between the two. That's for sure. He really is. He's so facile and so quick. Yeah. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. What's your favorite part of the job? Performing. <laughs> and what's your favorite audience? That's, favorite audience? I don't, the one that's in front of me. There you go. <laughs> really? Um, it's you a hard know, one to I, answer that. I, I go backwards and forwards on that all the time. It's like, what is my favorite audience? And it, I think it, yeah, it really does uh, come down you know, to the I one don't in front. I do kids very often anymore, little kids. And mm -hmm. whenever I do, I realize, oh, what a treat. <laughs> yes, yes. This is why I didn't go crazy when I was a librarian. I had these right. kids. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> their bright little faces and their acceptance of absolutely anything. You know, picking their nose and... I know, right? <laughs> totally wrapped. Yes. <laughs> or if you bore them, they get up and they walk away. Right. And then you know you know how to bring it up a notch. <laughs> They're great litmus tests. I love them. I yeah. Love kids. Yeah. yeah. Is, is there anybody that you wish that you had met that you didn't get to meet? I know some names of people I would have loved to have met, but it's not because I feel any affiliation. It's just that I know they were giants mm -hmm. and they were uh, deep diggers. And uh, Ruth Sawyer is one, um, Augusta Baker is another i i know so little about either of them except that their work right. influenced 
so much other work, you know? Right. Um, again, you know, I did meet Jackie Torrance and she came to our library once and was just exactly as magical and amazing as you might think she might have been. Right. You know, so... I, no, she, she's one of the people that I would like to have seen. And also yeah. Sid Lieberman. I, 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 was, I was conversing with him um, about one of the stories that he tells. And I thought, I've got to go and see him. I've got to go and see him. And then I think it was like two years later, he, he was gone and it yeah. killed me, you know? Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I met Sid a couple of times and, you know, got to hang out with him once. And yes, it was, it was a joy. It really was. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like I said, I was, I was probably, the amount of conversation that I had with him verbally was maybe five minutes, <laughs> 10 minutes at most. But the vibe that he gave off um, uh -huh. was, was just wonderful. And it's like, I got to see him. I got, I want to see him perform. So it hurts because when, when he was alive, a lot of it, he had a lot of his stuff on his website for free and you could just listen to it, which was amazing because you know, nobody does that, <laughs> you know, and, and yet there he was and he was working really hard and was doing really well. And yeah. You know, yeah. So yeah, he was an amazing guy. I'd like to have met him. Oh dear. So what's next on your list of things to do in this world of ours? Once we, I don't know. Once we start to come out of this COVID crap. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have any plans. I want to see my grandchildren. I want to see my daughter and my son and my daughter-in-law, you know? Right. But um, as far as ambitions go, I, I got my sewing machine out when this all started and I made a bunch of masks and realized, hey, sewing, I like sewing. So I'm learning to sew again. Oh, cool. And I quite like it. I love it. You know, I'm ordering patterns, ordering fabric. Making You're making clothes. things though? Oh, you are making them. Okay. Yeah, I'm making things. <laughs> um, sometimes I get, in, get into something and I'll be like, oh, yeah, I really want to do this. And it's, it's really fun. And I'll order a bunch of stuff and then it just sits there and nothing happens. <laughs> yeah, I was like that with um, the idea of uh, doing audiobooks, you know, narrating yes. audiobooks. Right. I thought that's going to be the next big thing for me. And then I realized how much work it is. <laughs> oh, it's, it is a ton of work. And yeah. when I started it, um, when I started doing it, there wasn't a lot of competition. Um, there were, there were a few people out there with big names, but there was a, a lot of other people that weren't big names. And so getting chosen was quite regular, but then a lot of, big name people realize that they could make even more money than they had already. <laughs> now, just because you're big name doesn't mean you've got money, dear. Well, that's true. You know, that's true. Yeah, it's true. I know that. Because I should know that. Audio, audio books don't pay a lot. They don't. And it's a lot of hard work to, to make and a good a audio book. Yeah. 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 So, um, I don't know. I love performing. I don't like marketing. Right. You know, it, it just kind of makes me want to pull my teeth out. Um, <laughs> That's an image. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I, I imagine I am, if I'm not in retirement, I'm teetering on the brink. Um, oh. I have to find your tour manager. Please do. I mean, if <laughs> you know, and, and that's lazy of me. I know it's lazy. Well, it's not. I, well, I don't, I, I, I would, I would challenge that. Um, I think that there's, a, there's some people that have a talent for doing that kind of stuff. And there are some people that it absolutely scares witless. Um, I struggle with it. I do it. Doesn't it doesn't scare me witless, but it saps my energy. Mm -hmm. I would, yeah, it does that to me too. I, fi I find no joy in it. <laughs> no joy. I was working no. with another storyteller and we started working on a database um, for all the libraries in New Hampshire and we both ended up paying his daughter to do it for us. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then Mark got in touch with me and he said, have you had any luck with, with contacts yet? And I said, no, which is perfectly true because I hadn't sent anything out yet. <laughs> but I've got access to this wonderful database, which I'm going to use very soon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like no. to share? Okay. Is there anything you'd oh. like to share with other people about storytelling that 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 you think should be heard? Some thought, some nugget. Yeah. Some of that, some of that wisdom that yeah. your dad never liked to get out. If um, I mentioned this on my last uh, newsletter to all my house concert mm -hmm. addresses, contacts. And that is, if you are just recently come to this art form as an observer, as audience, and if the virtual concerts are the bulk of what you've seen, and maybe you're thinking, eh, this isn't really getting it for me, hold that thought until such time as we're out and about and live in front of real human beings in real time. Wait until you can experience storytelling as part of it. Because truly this experience has taught me, I thought I knew it already, but it's taught me on a bone level that this is collaborative art. Oh, yeah, totally is. And virtual ain't collaborative. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. So that's what I want to end on, had that happy note. <laughs> I like that happy note. Stick around until you've seen us live. <laughs> <laughs> Good, good. That's the tagline right there. Stick around until you've seen us live. Good. Megan, thanks so much indeed for doing this. I really appreciate it. Welcome, Simon. It's fun talking to you. It's fun talking right. to you. Mwah. Mwah. Take care of yourself and uh, hopefully we'll see each other sooner rather than later. Yeah. All right. Safe. You too. Bye. See you. Bye. I hope you had as much fun as I did laughed as much as I did. Megan is an exemplary storyteller and a wonderful friend. Go to her website, buy stuff, book her, go see her perform, have a house concert with her. Anyway, 
If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale, myths and legends storyteller, send me an email. You can find me and my work on Facebook, Simon Brooks Storyteller, on my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com, and on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree? Yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. A shout-out to Chris Jett for creating and recording and letting me use the wonderful music for my podcast. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. Check them out. You can help keep this podcast alive by becoming one of my patrons and paying anything from a dollar for an episode you enjoyed to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early releases, and exclusive content on my work. www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. Many thanks to Scott and Robin, Ted, Tatiana, Rachel Ann, Lisa, Chris, Cynthia, Jenny, Merrick, Eleanor, Laura, Ralph, Hope, Pat, Alicia, Andy, Kristen, Valerie, and Tim. Thanks for supporting my little podcast. I greatly appreciate it. If you can't join these wonderful folks, then help me out by doing something you can do. I would be very grateful if you were to leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, wherever you find this episode. It won't take long and it helps. Not just me, but it helps others to find and enjoy this podcast too. Thanks again for being here with me. I know there are lots of other places you could be. I appreciate it. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories that you love. Cheers. Simon out. It's just a story. It's just a story. <laughs> just a story. <laughs> yeah.